Hello and welcome to Let Me Introduce You, the food business podcast where I introduce you to the most amazing producers, entrepreneurs and consultants who work with me to help me build stronger, healthier, better versions of food businesses. I've been building teams to work with food businesses for over 25 years now. We're taking you behind the scenes in my business to meet some of them. In today's episode, I'm joined by Bruce Langlands, a fellow Scot and um, food, passionate, passionate foodie. Bruce has had an incredible career to date in food retail, both involved in the development of retail experiences, largely all in food and drink, but also in product development, bringing products to market helping set standards for businesses and then implement them and has worked in an amazing array of businesses, including Marks and Spencers in Greece and Belfast and then in Harrods and Selfridges and in Superquin in Ireland. So just an incredible journey to date through food, punctuated by his attention to detail and his commitment and and passion. Passion is an overused word, but passion for everything that he gets involved in, knowing about it down to the last detail and just making sure that the experience of the customer is front of mind in absolutely every decision that they make. And he has impacted a number of retailers in and outside the UK with the way that he has operated and changed and developed businesses for them. He has also embraced restaurant openings in retail and, you know, really pushed the boundaries on a lot of things. And it's a great story to hear and... I'm delighted that he joined us on the podcast today to share his thoughts with us on how that has played out, influenced him, what what he might have ended up doing if he hadn't come into food and what he would tell other people if they're coming in now too. So definitely if you are pitching food products into retail, you want to listen to this one and, and hear what he suggests. So you and I met when we both were invited to do some food and drink awards judging and we bonded over a few coincidences. We both lived in the same part of London. We were both Scottish. We also share a lot of opinions about food and drink and what works and what doesn't. So it was very good to meet you then and I'm glad that we've been able to stay in touch for, I, I would say, about 10 years now, probably. Something like that. Does that Absolutely. sound about right? It is 2011 we met. Um, I'll never forget it in Hammersmith. Yep. And um, yeah, we uh, we just seemed to gel very quickly. And what a 10 years that's been. We did. And I mean, we've recently been doing some judging separately but together so we've been judging the same things but we've both been doing it remotely but then anytime once we'd finished and I sent you a comment about something your comment about that thing was almost in exactly the same place which is it's just funny isn't it it's um we, we both have an eye for the same sorts of things and we can see 
see see great things, great things. We we very often say simply done, but but good, and that's all you're looking for. Absolutely, things don't need to be difficult. I think if you have the great ingredients and you do it well, then you can have award winning product. Yeah, and it and it's knowing when to stop and not to add too much and not to do too much to it and understanding all the commercials and everything of that product so the other thing that we we joke about is that we're both part of the there is a a network of Scottish people working in food and drink throughout the country and beyond I I was speaking to Cameron Sutherland yesterday who's based in France and there's a there's a whole network of us and we're like the Scottish food mafia we will all bend over backwards to help each other too you know and it's a great you have a call with somebody and as soon as you hear their accent you know you've got an in so it's um it's a good it's a good thing it's a very useful thing how would you describe your journey in food when you knew you were going to start and and what you do well, I knew my journey in retail well, kind of came about when I was 16 and um, I wanted some extra pocket money. So I went out and got a Saturday job and actually it was with Bally of Switzerland in Princess Street. It was a brand new shop arriving in Princess Street and I thought, God, I want to be part of that. Do you know too, that's funny because I also showed shoes in Roland Cartier in Glasgow probably about the same time. <laughs> High Gosh, end, that's another connection. Beautiful, expensive, weird Bali as well. Love those shoes. Great shoes. Good oh, choice. Fun- <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. And it was at that stage I got the retail bug. I, I was good at it. I was good at selling. I loved the customer interaction. And it was kind of weird because it was at that stage I thought, I want to base my career on this. At that stage wasn't sure it was going to be fashion or how it's just happened it's Mm -hmm. gone into foods and it's gone into foods because I was studying or having all my school subjects around becoming a physio and occupational therapist right gosh I didn't know this this is interesting yeah and I was very lucky and fortunate to be sent to a hospital who um for some work experience at Stoke Mandeville Mm, goodness and within two days I just knew this wasn't for me. That wasn't what you wanted to do. And that's often how it's got to be, hasn't it? You've got to try something else to know that that's not the thing. Absolutely. And I just didn't, I just knew this wasn't my life journey. And I can remember going home and having a conversation with my parents and saying, and them saying, well, what, what, what do you love? What would you love to do? And I said, I want to go into retail. I love retail. And some of the best piece of advice they gave and they were very supportive was well if you're going to do it go to the best so actually apply for somebody like John Lewis Marks and Spencer or at that time Jenner's was a big thing in Edinburgh because they had great training schemes yes so I did that and I was very fortunate to be one of the 150 school leavers that got a job in 1988 in the graduate scheme of Marks and Spencer Fantastic. And I was there for 17 and a half years. Isn't that brilliant? That's And that is absolutely proof that you were doing something that met your purpose because you'd never, I mean, you knew within two days of being at Stoke Mandeville that that wasn't your vacation. But I would say, you know, you found 100% in retailing, you found the right thing or you'd never, ever have been there 17 and a half years in the first company that you were in what was it about m and that, that that held you was it the opportunities was it the people or 
Was it all of that? You know, there was a number of things. The professionalism of the business. And when I joined the business, it was still very much a family business. Mm -hmm. But the opportunity to move around the country, which I did, um, I think in in the first few years, gosh, I had, I think I had. Where did you start? So I started on the 5th of September, 1988 in Blackpool store. Oh goodness. And I'd never been to Blackpool in my life. I think my mother looked at me horrified when I got told that it was Blackpool, but by goodness, did I have a great time there and worked with an amazing manager called Peter Gates, who's sadly no longer with us. And, then move from and there. That's so to important back. too, isn't it? Good people. Do you know oh, a lot on the amazing. podcast when we talk to people, and I'll ask you later on about people who've influenced you. And and very often it's people right at the beginning of people's careers. It's not Richard Branson's book on this, or you know, it's when I was working weekends. I mean, imagine if you'd gone to Bali and had a bad experience, you'd never even have thought about retail. And I think sometimes we all forget that we are always showing other people by example, even if you're not conscious of it, and mentoring people and showing them the way they could do things. And if you think, oh, this person's only a Saturday person, so it maybe doesn't matter so much, or, you know, you could change the the whole path of somebody's life by giving them a good or a bad experience in that. So it's kind of fundamental, isn't it, right at the beginning? Absolutely. And also the amazing people work at Martin Spencer. And I mean, from the shop floor up. Um, So you were working with a level called supervisors who were kind of, they ran the business. They absolutely understood the customer, they understood a rack of clothing could come in or a new tree of product. And I can remember the supervisor standing there and going, fantastic, fantastic, red. And as soon as he said red, I said, oh, what's that? Reduced. Mm-hmm. That's not going to sell. And nine times out of ten, they were absolutely right. And the other opportunities were to be able to work abroad. And, you know, I was very fortunate to be the country manager of Greece, um, based in Athens. Which is And then having the opportunity to move um, across to Southern Ireland to work yes. for the business, to be the country food manager there. And, and I mean... That is a part of the world, the the Southern Ireland part of the world has been a very strong part of your food journey too, hasn't it? So you went there with M&S initially and then did you immediately go into other retailers in Southern Ireland or did you go back there later? Well, interesting. The island of Ireland, as I would say, has been my second home because in 1991, I was moved there from Marks and Spencer to Belfast. We'll maybe touch on that later. And then in 2000 and um, the late 90, 90s, I moved to Dublin to work for Marks and Spencer as uh, the country food manager. In 2006, I actually resigned from Marks and Spencer after 17 and a half years um, as I was attempted to go and join a company called Supercrin, which was the amazing business which was set up by Senator Fergal Quinn. And it had just been sold. And I moved across there to help and support and to move that business on. And and that is, uh, was, because it doesn't exist sadly anymore, but it was a, a premium 
retailer in Ireland? How how many stores would they have had at that point? And yeah, there was twenty four stores in total. When I arrived, the business had just been sold for four hundred million, but was in a not the best state of affairs in terms of sales, in terms of losing profit. And I went in initially as a regional manager looking after the Dublin stores. And then I had just moved out of product development with Marks and Spencer to go to Superquinn. So there was always underlying that I wanted to go in and run the product side product, of the business, product. which I did. So I was appointed head of product development and food safety. And we really took the business to a different level. However, I would say that the one thing that was amazing and probably one of my role models was actually Fergal Quinn. Um, I've been very, very lucky in my career to work with some real major giants in retail from Sir Richard Greenbury to Justin King to Mohammed Fayed to the late Galen Weston. Yes. But actually... It was Fergal Quinn who founded this small supermarket chain, which was at the centre of Ireland, and the customer was at the centre of every single decision he made. He was the first uh, supermarket to bring in a loyalty card in um, um, 2006. I mean, these were big, big things. And this was a gentleman who... That other people have all jumped on and and run with. Absolutely. But this was a, uh, sorry, the loyalty card was in 1993. Um, but this was a gentleman who one minute would be sitting in the boardroom and literally five minutes later, jacket off, sleeves rolled up and helping to pack bags at the checkout because he then understood what the customer was doing. Yep. And I can remember him telling me one day that he was doing that job and saw a very harassed mother with a child and the child was desperate for some confectionery, which was at the point. Mm-hmm. And clearly the mother didn't want to buy it, but it was really frustrating her. Mm-hmm. And within 24 hours, he removed confectionery from till points into the, because he knew that that was not a great thing for his customer base. No, and, and then she's leaving the store feeling harassed and that's her last memory of, of a visit to that store. So it's not not a good thing, is it? But that's great, isn't it? I mean, it's it is that is inspirational. So it's lovely to get to to work with somebody like that. I think too, unless you've been in in Ireland and been in the retailers there, you can't believe how different things are and how how different they still are. I mean, one of the things that always surprises me is culturally they still eat together much more as families. You know, they all certainly come back home at the weekends and get together. So you see family-sized apple pies and things, whereas here things are all individual or done for two or at the very most done for four. There are, you know, much bigger things because they congregate over food. And I would say food still has a... is is possibly more respected by more people and they've always loved knowing where things came from and, you know, the provenance of their food and things. I think they've been faster at latching onto that. Would you agree with that? I'd agree with you. I think um, family in Ireland is a big, big thing. Yeah. A massive thing. And, you know, the average size of a family in Southern Ireland is bigger than anywhere else as well. Yeah. Yeah. But you can see that people come home for the key holidays. So Easter, Christmas, 
big influx into yep. into the island. But it is a foodie island. Yep. It is an island which has produced and does produce some of the best meat in the world, some of the best fish and, and smoked salmon in the world. Yep. It really does punch its weight above. For such a small island, it produces such fantastic produce. And I think, too, them being a smaller island is part of that because where producers here have been scaled up massively to cope with the volumes and things that some of the bigger retailers would want. Retailers in Ireland, their own ones, have stayed a smaller size. So it was still possible for an artisan producer to supply all the stores of Superquin or all the stores of one retailer with a product. Whereas here, they could probably only supply on a local level because they couldn't cope with those volumes. So they tended to be encouraged to grow and and almost move away from the kind of products they had been making that attracted the retailers in the first place. I agree with you, absolutely. And I suppose that was one of the big roles that I played going into Superquin was really, especially as head of product development, was really looking at sourcing some of those smaller suppliers. Um, I always call it kind of man behind the hill, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they had such phenomenal product and actually looking at how we could bring that into our own brand and run that across 24 stores. Yep. It's great, isn't it? I know. And I mean, I I remember when I was doing some stuff on the signature range at Harrods, before you were there, I was doing some stuff on rewriting label descriptions for them. And they said to me, we've got wonderful honey. And I think it was the Malivan honey at that time that was coming from from Ireland. And uh, I said, right, I'll speak to them and I'll hear their story and everything. And I'll get, and, and they were saying the product developer was saying to me this is amazing stuff and we went to see them and you know the bees are feeding on the hedgerows and there are chickens running around and then I met the technical manager from Harrods who was like oh my word (laughs) there are chickens running around and there's this and there's that Uh you know it was real country production but they still managed to meet all the food safety requirements and everything, you know, but they didn't lose the soul of that food in that process. I don't think they detached themselves. And with other Irish retailers, you know, with Dunn's, I think on their Simply Better range, they've done a lovely thing of naming producers. And I think people are frightened to do that because they don't want everybody else to know who they got it from. And the thing is, within the industry, we can nearly always work out who they got it from. But I think it's lovely when they say this is made by a family business who are based in this area and they keep that connection to who those people are. And I think, you know, it's the same as cheeses and things. It's it's nice if it's not just West Cork, whatever it is, but it's this farm or that producer or, you know, I think I think it's lovely that they've kept those connections to things. I agree with you. And, you know, I was uh, very lucky to sit and have dinner with Reena Allen about mm. three or four years ago. She stood up and she was doing our after-dinner speech. We were in the Burren, actually, mm-hmm. which is a beautiful part yep. of Ireland, and it was for the Slow Food Festival. Yep. And she actually said something, and I can remember thinking, my goodness, it's such a missed opportunity, but something that should happen in Ireland and that was she said there's so many amazing artisan and fantastic products Mm -hmm. just about from every town or village 
as you go through Ireland. Yep. And actually, as you drive through Ireland, there should be the Burren, home of the X, yes. you know, yes. Wexford, home of the... And it would absolutely just multiply yep. the whole emphasis on food. And I just thought it was such and an I mean, amazing you opportunity. Of, you see some of that in the Great Taste Award winners too, don't you? Because you see parts of Northern Ireland and the South as well flagged up again and again for having winning products Absolutely. from them. You know, and for such a small population in both those areas, they've really punched above their weight in those awards, which is fantastic. Absolutely. Which is great. And just going to the north of Ireland, you look at somebody like Peter Hannan, <laughs> who produces the most amazing meat. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And I was won lucky a great to be on a, a, twice. A, a, an Invest NI event last week that he had supplied some meat for. And when you cook it up, you know, it just reminds you why his stuff excites you so much. And I also uh, was introduced in that call to a new company that I hadn't seen before called Crax, C-R-A-I-C. Yep, that's, I had to think how you spell that. But who do things like pickled gooseberries and things, which are just unbelievable. You know, a great quality, small producer putting the quality of the end product above everything else and arriving, you know, at that product. So... Yes, it's always an exciting place to look at food. What pulled you away from Ireland? Where did you go next? The lure of the Terracotta Palace, otherwise known as Harrods. Harrods. I got a phone call and uh, after what seemed like, well, it wasn't seemed like three months worth of interviews, yep. the opportunity to go and run the food halls and then the restaurants, which there were 20 six of, of them at the time in Harrods was Amazing, just too much not to, not, not to take up. So, yeah, the opportunity to do that was just um, phenomenal. And I so had you, an amazing six years there. Yay. Good. And you'd obviously, you'd lived in London before that when you'd been at m and you'd, you'd spent some yeah. time in London. So it was a bit like coming back to London as well for you. Yeah, I, I still owned a home here. Um, I was always going to come back to London. Mm-hmm. Um, I adore London. So it was always in the plan to come back. To come back to Harrods was never really in the plan. But um, I'm delighted it happened because it really was very much a highlight of my career. And such an incredible experience. Just, I mean, I know some of the, the stories, some of the products that you were able to bring in there and, you know, just the the variety of customers that you have in there, the very different customers from the Harrods bag souvenir hunter who comes in to buy a very small piece of cheese just so they can get a Harrods bag to the people who never set foot in the shop but do their entire food shop through you, people for whom you fly stuff in from all over the world. Just such a such a, a variety of different customers and the opportunity that that gave you to stock some incredible foods. Yeah, it was. It, it genuinely was one of the highlights of my career. I mean, it is a remarkable place. I mean, you've got a million square feet. Yep. And it is the third biggest tourist attraction in London. It's amazing. So, you know, with a customer base, which, as you said, is hugely tourist, but also you have got that local London customer coming in. Yeah. So my role there was really to understand who the customer was. Yep. And then to make sure that we had 
the right products for those different customers for those different occasions so yeah it was um it was remarkable it was an amazing place the other thing that i always think surprises people about there is that it's probably one of a very few places in the world where you actually want them to take an own label product from you. You don't really want to put your brand in there if you can, because there's so such strong sales on their own branded product because their name carries such weight that I, I think the figures used to be something like four to one. The, the percentages that sold on signature products and things. So, you know, when people say, oh, they want us to do it on label, I'd be going, do it, do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, 70% of, of, yeah. Yeah, 70% of sales were on label. Yeah. Um, we had 180 chefs working in house. So we had a cold kitchen, a hot kitchen, and we had a patisserie kitchen. And I was just in Harrods on, on Friday um, to have a look at the new food hall. At the new, new food hall. Um, chocolate hall. Yes. Which opened last week. Yep. Uh, where they're actually making fresh chocolates on site. Yeah. And it is stunning. It is absolutely beautiful. They've taken it to the next level. They have. And everything from the lighting to uh, the packaging is beautiful. They have clearly thought through exactly the brands they want to work with. So the concession partners are great. So Williams Curly's looking fantastic. Rococo looks amazing. And I believe they've got Bouja Bouja as well in, have they? Absolutely. Yep. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's, it's really is, is. I mean, that's a big thing for them because they've, Bouja have never been like in a, in a store like that before. So it's a great thing. But I mean, it's a difficult building too because of the, because of all the parts of it that are protected are, are listed and things. So but it was badly needed, wasn't it, to to make the flow better within that? Absolutely, customer experience Absolutely. better. But then they've also taken, which is I think is the most beautiful room in the whole of the store, which was the old meat and fish room, which yes. is now the hall of dining. Yes, which I mean, you just stand there in awe, where you've got hand painted Royal Dalton tiles from Thomas Neatby, which were done in nineteen o one. Yep, um, ten years before he passed away, actually. Gosh. And they're still there looking absolutely Christine. stunning. And it doesn't matter if it's a fish shop or it's a restaurant or whatever. It just flows beautifully. And it just it just shows it worked the test of time. It looks yep. stunning. That's amazing, isn't it? I know. I mean, how many retail shop fits would still look that good 120 years later? It's incredible, isn't Not it? Not many. It is. And then from there you went... Through the park and up to the other end of London. I, did. I went to, as we we call the big yellow box. I went Absolutely. south. Absolutely, and that's yeah. and that has a very different cut. I mean, people very often talk about the food halls in London all in one sentence, but I mean, Fortnum's, Harrods, Harvey Nichols, and Selfridges all very different animals, very different customer bases. Again, so what was I mean? Because I I I know I can remember the huge impact that your time in Selfridges had on what they had, how they arranged it, how the store looked. What drew you to that? What made you want to make that move and have that experience? Well, the move was a promotion. Um, So it was to join the main board, which um, was obviously something I'd always aspired to do. Um, And also it was multi-site. Yes, so it wasn't just London-based. No. Uh, two stores in Manchester, store in Birmingham, 
and then online, yep. which was big. So, and it was a, a bigger global business in yep. terms of it owns Brown Thomas, it owns the Bancroft and, and then Canada. So the, the, it was a big business. Yep. Also, I saw a huge opportunity there. Yep. Um, and an opportunity which was very different to Harrods because Selfridges is very much the Londoner store. Not just looking after the food halls, but the first job I was given from my MD and picture when I walked in was mm. a plan and said, right, you've got a 150 seater restaurant to open. Uh, you need to find somebody to do it. Over to you, Bruce. Jeez. So there were some great opportunities because the one thing the Western family did brilliantly, as have um, Harrods, by the way, is really invested into their bricks and mortar and into their buildings and made, and Selfridges specifically, was all about customer experience and all about theatre and all about actually a place to come and meet, not just a place to come and shop, but no. a place to socialise. And huge opportunity there on sustainability and really looking at how we package goods, how we source goods and whatever. So a very, very exciting time. Yep. And a very, a, a very kind of contemporary. So where Harrods has all that history and, and, and that attracts another type of customer. Selfridges was always a bit cutting edge, a bit contemporary and a bit different, but again, had a customer that had probably hooked on to sustainability faster than other customers had and other stores. Absolutely. I mean, they're less than two miles apart. Yep. They were built and launched around about the same time, but two very different customer bases. Yep. So as we've exactly. talked about, the big tourist business in, in Harrods, but in Selfridges, massive millennial business. Yep. Massive lunchtime trade. And a customer looking for products that had sustainable yep. um, qualities towards them and credentials, which was actually very different to what I saw across the park. Yes, that's that's true. No, that's good. I, I mean, it's amazing. What what a journey and what a great load of experience. And I mean, the, the big restaurant. You mean that you opened there. I mean that that alone. If that had been your only task there, that would have been phenomenal. But I mean, and and so successful and so acclaimed and everything. But that's quite a different skill set from your retail skill set. So, how have you? Where where's that come from? Do you have to eat? Well, it, it is, but you know, <laughs> yeah. Well, you do have to eat it a lot, but you know, it is a different skill set. But it is all about the customer. Yep. That's At the end of the day, it's all about the customer and it's all about customer service. And it is about making sure that you have something that a customer wants to come back to and back for time and time again. Yep. And, you know, when I was given the space to look at and say, OK, what do we do here? I knew we didn't have the skill base in store to do it ourselves, mm -hmm. which would have been an amazing thing to do. And actually something that we'd have probably done if I'd been in Harrods. Mm hmm. Although it's really interesting. I've just seen that Jason Atherton has um, opened Harrods Social last week yes. and I had lunch there on Friday, yep. uh, which is very good. So I'm, I had to find an operator yes. that could work with us. The and I whittled it down. Too. Absolutely. And I can remember sitting down with Richard Kering and he was incredibly nervous. Mm. First time we were thinking about opening a restaurant in a, a, a department store. And secondly, opening one that wasn't on ground level. 
but was on the first floor and you had to come up an escalator, a lift or a stairway to get to. Yep. And actually, once we got round those issues, together we del- delivered what I think is one of the most spectacular Beautiful. restaurants. Beautiful and great menu. And yeah, it, it really was outstanding. Uh, you know what I mean? And probably one of the most photographic restaurants in London at the moment. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Very much so. Another question to touch on now, role models. You've you've spoken a little about some of the people that have inspired you and some of the great people that you've met and known. Who do you think you've learned most from? Who, who's been the person that has stretched you the most or inspired you the most? Or Well, it's a really good question. And I've been very fortunate, as I said earlier, to work with some amazing people. But actually... I will go back to one store manager who I worked with in 1990 when I was appointed to be the assistant manager in Marks and Spencer Belfast. Yep. Now, as you can imagine, 1990 Belfast was quite an interesting time. It was a city in turmoil and a lot of people did not want to go to Belfast. But those appointed there were given an additional 20% into their salary. So uh, guess what? I was absolutely sold from hearing that. Um, also, it was a top 20 store, so was delighted to go there. But I met a gentleman who was my general manager called John Hunt. And right. John had been an ex-senior police officer in Rhodesian Police. So a very disciplined um, character. But he was the guy that really taught me the basics of retailing. Yep. Um, so knowing your customer, proportionate display, availability was critical. But the one thing which I think a lot of younger people coming into the industry these days miss out on, and he absolutely had it instilled in every single member of his staff, was something called the morning inspection. And it was being on the sales floor an hour before the store opened and checking everything from the cleanliness of fitting rooms, the fill within the food hall, going outside and looking at the front windows and making sure all the lights were working, making sure there was baskets and trolleys at the front of the store, and just making sure everything was right for pre-opening. And it's something that has stuck with me in my 30 years career. And even in my latter days in Selfridges and Harrods, you would see me from 8 o'clock in the morning Prior to opening at 10 o'clock, I'd be front stage, backstage of restaurants, on the shop floor, just making sure that it was absolutely right for the customer. Do you know... So that was one thing that's, that's funny. never, ever left me. Shabnam Weber, who we've spoken to in the podcast, who is the president of the Tea Association of Canada, talks about her, the person that inspired her the most. And this was somebody she worked with, I think, when she was a student. And he was obsessed about the carpet outside the restaurant on the street, the kind of doormat being clean. And she said he always asked if she'd done it and she wanted to do it so much. You know, she wanted to get to a point where he wasn't asking her so much that she became as obsessed about it as he did. And, you know, it's funny, isn't it, how these things that seem small become you know just such a huge part and and to see your store every morning with fresh eyes in the way that your customers will you can't you can't 
avoid that, can you? And, you know, no amount of other stuff will make up for that if you've missed some of that. Absolutely. And I remember walking the floor with him on a Saturday afternoon in Belfast. And we were on the ground sales floor. It was a a three-floor store. And literally the ground shook and a bomb had gone off outside the store in uh, one of the buses. Uh And we happened to be on the ground floor and we walked towards the front of the store and people were running into the store, some, Mm -hmm. you know, covered in blood, some Uh such. And I can remember getting ready to run and he just grabbed my arm and said, as cool as a cucumber, Bruce, don't run, walk. Because what you'll do is you'll panic people. People. And Mm -hmm. we've got to calm the situation down. And I've got to tell you that... Those wise words have stayed with me through many, many times of crisis. Oh, when other things have happened. Actually, you know, just don't panic. Keep calm because people look towards you for, and if you're calm and keep it going, the whole situation just calms Calms down. down. So so I don't know where he has gone. I've tried to find him on LinkedIn. I've tried to find him in many places. But, you know, um, he has been, without doubt, one of the more inspirational people that I've worked with. Isn't that lovely, though? What a great thing, what a great legacy he has left. And I, I suspect that you won't be the only person that he inspired as much as that. So that, that is fantastic. People often talk about stepping out of your comfort zone and the fact that, you know, to grow, to be successful, you need to step outside your comfort zone. Something that I can, when I thought about this at first, I thought, oh, I don't really want to because I feel uncomfortable enough a lot of the time without and then I realised that's because you are already outside your comfort zone what when you look back at things that you've done to date what amazes you that you've done what do what would you never have seen yourself doing that you've done because I can see I suppose one thing (laughs) was um I am a bit of a as you probably know a little bit of a control freak no I hate surprises, uh-huh. uh, whether good surprises or bad surprises. I, I just don't like surprises. And actually, when I was asked to go on TV, mm-hmm. and I was on a television programme which um, was presented by Gizzy Erskine. Yep. And James Averdyke actually called Cooks to Market. Yes. I and it was it. in 2012, and it was very much like a dragon's den, if you like. And I was would have been one of the dragons, if you like. And it was potential food companies coming in, presenting. Pitching. And we had to pick one of them and pitching. And actually, I thought I'd love this, to be in front of a um, camera without an autocue. Yes. And actually not knowing what you were going to say, no. I found absolutely terrifying. I think it's I loved the fact it. that it's going to be filmed and you're going to see it for the rest of your life too. You know, because a lot of the time in a conversation, you'll see something, but it doesn't matter. But I know I have felt like that. If you're going to say something on a TV thing and you're not sure what they're going to ask you, you don't want to be surprised by something. You know, you want to know, because sometimes you think, I think that's what I think. And then you think, why do I think that? Where have I, how have I validated that opinion? Or, you know, you do want the thinking time. So I can understand that. It's a big pressure. But you enjoyed it. But listen, I really enjoyed it. And you get into, into the flow. And But what that has allowed me to do is, obviously in the roles that I've done, I've had to stand up in front of many suppliers or, or partners, as they like to call them, or colleagues and do updates and whatever. 
And actually, it just gives you even more confidence yeah. to be able to stand up and um, talk with conviction. I know. I I share often with people that I was asked when the horse meat scandal in the UK food industry broke. I was asked by Sky Television if I would go in the first evening. It was a Saturday when it came to light and nobody really knew exactly what had happened. And I was asked if I would go into Sky TV and go on the news to comment on it. Largely, I think, because I live within a couple of miles of Sky and can get there very quickly. And um, they said, we'll just slide you in and this is the presenter and you know, she'll just ask you a couple of questions to warm you up. And her first question to me was, if they've found horse DNA, do you think they'll find human DNA in the food chain? <laughs> And I thought, oh my goodness. starter for 10, do you know? Like, thanks for that. Jesus. Fortunately, I thought, yes, they will, because our DNA will be on stuff because people touch everything you eat, you know? And, and I approached it that way as if I assumed that's what she had meant and and was able to, to get away with it. But you do think, blooming heck. But I, I remember saying then too, I don't know what has caused this, but I can guarantee that it will be something criminal because the, we are so robust in knowing where everything goes. So you've you've said that you've been out recently, you've obviously been in town, and I've seen you eating out locally and things. What is the best thing that you've eaten recently? Now, that can either be something that you've brought home and cooked or had delivered or... Or if we, you've been out and eaten, what, what has excited you recently? Well, actually, Jane, there's two things. One of which we had the pleasure of discovering together. Yes. When we were judging at the inaugural Scottish Retail Food and Drink Awards. Yep. And that was the Thoroughventus Salt Cod Patty. That was incredible, Which I thought was it? just the most incredible product. And as we both know, salt cod is not the easiest thing to prepare, but actually for this patty was just and i for people that have not sampled it they, they just really should and i think and it's a product um, from shetland i mean and it's an, an incredible uh, product isn't it and the second and i've got to say this has got to be my partner's carrot cake because mm. being a scot i have got a very very sweet tooth uh-huh. and it is the best a it mean might carrot even cake? be up there with oh with flavor towns and that is saying something but it really is uh-huh. amazing so those are the two things. Frosted I've, I've carrot recently. cake, not frosted. Tell, oh, come on, you have to frosted. give us more detail. All, always frosted. And the secret ingredient, believe it or not, is pineapple. Oh, right. Ah. That ah. Is, sometimes that's called a hummingbird cake, isn't it? I think. I think well, a this cake just pineapple gives it, it a level of moistness in it. It is yeah. absolutely delicious. Really it's delicious. funny, isn't it? My dad's sister used to make her Christmas cake and it was a New Zealand recipe that she had and she put a tin of strawberries in it. And you never would have known that there was a tin of strawberries in it. It didn't taste of strawberry, but it was just that moisture again. It just gave that texture. Yeah, totally. Amazing. But, oh, that sounds good. Pineapple. Pineapple in his carrot cake. Good. Spice as well. Bit of spice, bit of cinnamon or not really? Always spice. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. I'm liking the sound of that. What would you say if somebody's starting, if somebody's going to come and show you a new product or something, what would you say to them? Make sure you've got 
this in place, this right, you should think about this before you step out the door to go and talk to people, what would you? There's a couple of things I would say to them. You know, if they were coming to a retailer to kind of look at the product, know their marketplace, know who their customer is, and know who their competition is. So make sure if it's a jar of jam, for instance, what's different about their product to everybody else's? What's the price of their product compared to everybody else's? And who's the product that they are wanting to get at? I, I mean, I just think that's absolutely vital. I, I, um, I mean, I know I go through something similar with people because I say, otherwise, if you haven't got those other things right, then it becomes only about yours being cheaper than other people's. And that doesn't serve you well. And it doesn't serve other people well either because it's a race to the bottom at that point. So Absolutely. And what is great. unique about their product is always what I want to know. You know and not that it's a family um, recipe. Ah! Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I know. I do. Because I think that, you know, if I had a pound for every time somebody says, ah, but this is our hot sauce recipe. Ah. It doesn't really cut through, unfortunately. A couple of things. One, I am, you know, thank you very much. I've really enjoyed going through these things with you. It's been really helpful and insightful. And I've learned some things that I didn't know. If you could sum yourself up in three words, what do you think those three words are? God, this is interesting. You know, I was interviewed (laughs) recently and I was asked how my friends would describe me, Uh actually. Yes. And after the interview, I actually said to my friends, my nearest and dearest, so, okay, what would be the three words that would describe me? Good. And actually, they weren't that dissimilar to what I would have said myself. Right. The first one that everybody said, and I would agree, is loyal. Yep. I am an incredibly loyal friend. I'm an incredibly loyal employee. That would be very big in my mantra. Good. The second one is caring. Yep. Um, anything I do, I care about what I do. I care about my people. You can't do um, it I care about ever. No, I would say I that care about, about the you. You're, you're absolutely fully in it. I, I, I care about the the company I work for or whatever um, yep. or what I do. And the third one is, got to say, ambitious. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that's not okay. just on the work front, no. but that's about life. You know, it's I your want standards, isn't it? It's just the standards you expect of yourself. Yeah. You know, I'm ambitious with my time. I don't rest very often. You know, this morning I've had some time off. I've done a 12K walk with the dogs and then I've done two hours in the garden. Yeah. I just love to be doing things. So I'm Things with purpose too. One of them. Real, you know, useful things, things with purpose. And well, thank you for spending that time with us. I have really enjoyed that. And I know that this is going to make a great podcast episode. And I know that other people will get a lot from it too. And I very much look forward to seeing what comes next because I think although you've had some incredible highlights already, there's always more to come. And I think, you know, that's about your ambitions and your standards and things. I know that whatever is coming next is is going to set people thinking and show them things differently again. And, you know, you've been pioneering and a great influence in retail and in the restaurant side as well. Just, you know, the things that you've brought into store that people weren't getting before and things. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing what comes next. So thank you very much. Thank you for your time, Jane. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Let Me Introduce You, the Food Business Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, 
Please subscribe in Apple Podcasts or wherever you pick up your podcasts and make sure you don't miss an episode. Please leave a comment to let me know what you enjoyed or connect to me at Jane Milton Food on Instagram or at Food Networking on Twitter. And if you found this helpful, we'd love you to tell other food businesses about it too. See you next time.